Hello and welcome once again to Renoites. This is the local Reno podcast where I, your host, Connor McQuivy, talk to local folks from Reno, from the worlds of business, politics, all kinds of different stuff. Today, I am talking to Catherine Getsky. Catherine is the founder of HopefulCities.org. Did you know that Reno is in the middle of a program to inspire hope and hopefulness, and you can learn all about it? I was so excited to talk to Catherine today. We talked about destigmatizing mental health, about learning skills for being more hopeful, about the positive health benefits of hopefulness, all kinds of good stuff. So, without further ado, this week's guest, Catherine Getsky. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Catherine. So, to start, if you just want to tell me a little bit about what hope is, because that is your big thing. You are the hope person, I think. So what is what is hope and hopefulness? And can you just explain how they're different from things like optimism or a good attitude? Maybe talk about the the science a little bit behind why hope matters and uh, and just give us a little bit of background on on hope. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's awesome to be here. And I like the yellow in your background because that is the color of hope. So <laughs> very excited about that. So starting off with what hope is, well, I also, I like to actually start what hope isn't. I came to hope through really studying hopelessness and what hopelessness is. And hopelessness is the single consistent predictor of suicide across the board. Um, It's also a primary symptom of depression. It's a key symptom of anxiety and predictive of things like addiction and violence and self-harm and kind of all of these negative Things And hopelessness is defined as a feeling of despair and a sense of helplessness. So when you're hopeless, you feel horrible and you don't feel like you can do anything about it. So those are really the two key components. It's emotional and it's motivational. So I did a lot of research on other theorists around hope and research that had been done. And I really came to a definition that is pretty comprehensive of a num- pulls from a number of different ones. But it's really going from hopelessness, that despair, and that helplessness to a vision for a future. So it's a future orientation fueled by positive feelings. So feeling good, you know, the opposite of despair, and also um, inspired action. Going from helplessness and not just to action, but to really inspired actions. You know, we can act out in ways that are very uninspired in things like violence, addiction. So it's really important that we, you know, when we work, we work on our hope. I think it's something we work on. We work on getting to those positive feelings first and then taking that inspired action. So that's really how we defined, how I've defined hope, a vision fueled by positive feelings and inspired action in a nutshell. Got it. I like that there is the action part of that because my initial thinking of hopefulness is, oh, it's I, I hope I win the lottery. I hope today's good. I hope, you know, and there's not necessarily any follow up to it. But your concept of hope has this action element that you've kind of broken down into into steps, right? Yes. Yeah. I created kind of five keys for hope. And I think that's such an important part because you actually you asked in the, you know, in the beginning too, how is it different from optimism and and a wish, and and it is that action part of it. So to to hope for something, you have to feel good, but you also have to take steps to get there. So that's why we really, we created five keys to hope, kind of based on that, based on the process of hope and what kind of, um, what are keys to getting to that place of hope. The research is clear that it is very different from optimism. It's, it's different from resilience. So, you know, hope is actually a precursor to resilience. You need to be hopeful before you can then become resilient. It's a real fundamental building block, I think, for everything we want to do in life. It's key in the workplace. It's key in um, importance um, in school, in athletic performance, and has all kinds of positive outcomes related to it um, using hope measures. So there are actual scientific scales that measure your hope. There are some different ones. We use the hope, the Snyder Hope Scale. They have a children's hope scale and an adult one. So we've used that to measure it so people can actually measure um, their hope and then make 
inferences on things like sports or, or GPA or how long they'll live or, you know, the more hopeful you are, the, the better all of these outcomes are. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Can you, can you walk me through what those five elements of, of hopefulness are? Yeah, sure. So we, we created five keys to hope, and these are really, um, really important. The first is identifying and managing your stress response, which is so important. We're all so stressed out these days and, and triggered by all kinds of things. And when we act out in that triggered, stressed out place, usually doesn't lead to hopeful outcomes. It leads to things like addiction, violence, abuse, kind of all of these negative things. So really identifying and managing our stress response is the first key. To, in a very simplified version, we talk about it with kids, the downstairs and the upstairs brain. So our stress response happens in the downstairs brain, that fight, fight or flight mode. And when we're in that stress response, we can't access our upstairs brain, which is where we're creative and problem solving and collaborative and getting along with people. So it's really important to first manage our stress response, identify it and manage it because actually a lot of people don't even realize when they're triggered or when they're in their stress response. And that's why identifying it is really important as well as managing it. So that's the first key. The second is then really practicing these habits for happiness that kind of keep us in our upstairs brain so that keep us creative problem solving, things like nutrition and exercise and connecting with others, anything that really brings you joy. We're actually doing a 30-day hope challenge and today it's the happiness habit we're focused on is wonder and awe, experiencing wonder and awe. There's a science around the sense of wonder or the sense of awe and how that's something we actually kind of lose. We get afraid on when we're flying on airplanes because we're focused on our fear instead of thinking, oh my gosh, isn't it like amazing that we can get in these planes and like fly, you know, instead of really focusing on that wonder and awe. So it's a, it's a habit. It's a happiness habit that we have to really remember and practice and work on reframing. So that's the second key. The third key is taking inspired action using SMART goals. So we talk about a specific framework of goal setting that's really evidence-based. So instead of just, you know, I hope for, to win the lottery, it's like if you want to, if you know, if you want to win the lottery, you have just specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. And is that really attainable? Your odds are very low. Anyway, we we teach this process of goal setting, and then things like chunking down goals and the need to do that when you know they're too overwhelmed, overwhelming, or when you know maybe we need to set a new goal because we can't reach this goal. So we go through that. The fourth key is creating a really strong hope network. And this hope network, it's important, and we know through research that everyone needs at least one person that they can talk to, especially in times of stress and and need. It's got to be a supportive person that is encouraging, you know, so we can have toxic people in our life, too, that, you know, maybe we have a big network, but maybe we don't have helpful, supportive people in our lives. So it's really important that we look to create that strong network and then look at what it takes to create a strong network. Um, There's this five to one rule. You have to say five positive things to every criticism. And that's challenging oftentimes to do, especially if you're, you know, a task person or problem solver because you're looking for, you know, you're looking. So, you know, it's what really fosters these these connections. And, and do you know where to go in times of crisis? So if you're in crisis, have you identified where you'll go for support? So that's kind of the fourth key to hope. And then the fifth key is really just overcoming some common challenges to hope. Just a lot of things we do with thinking, like rumination, worrying about the future, trying to control things that are out of our control, uh, internalizing failure. So we teach some kind of ways to adjust and, and to foresee these and then how to navigate through them and how to think about things differently. So yeah, those are the five keys. One of the things that I like about the programs that I've seen on your website is the reference to operate, the references to 
opera operationalizing. There we go. Operationalizing hope. That was a tricky one uh, to operationalizing hope. And I think that is something that makes it more accessible for some people. The, I have a tendency to want to figure out how things work and what's the system and what's the process. And that just comes from my work life and my history. I always want to know what's the process, what's the structure of it. So do you think that by talking about hope as a, a practical thing that you can work on, that you can put steps towards, does that make it more accessible or more understandable to people than the kind of vague concept of hope? Yeah, that's the aim. I mean, our biggest challenge is that people don't understand hope and they think of hope as a wish. They think of it as a soft skill and not as a science and not as, you know, they'd studied hope a lot, but they didn't think, okay, then how can we increase hope? How can we like operationalize it in our lives and how can we practice it and become better at hope? And for me, that was critical to start doing great, we have all of this research around hope, and this is so helpful, and hopelessness, right? But how do we get from hopelessness to hope? How do we, how would we? And that's really where I started. I started maybe eight or nine years ago. How would we teach it? And we created a program that actually aimed to do just that, to teach it. And I'm a very logical thinker and research-oriented by nature, and so I want a system in place that I can then start working on it every day. And to me, mental health overall is just a very complex seeming field. And I need, like when I have suicidal ideations, I need to, that seems unsolvable. Like that seems like I can't fix, like I don't, that just doesn't seem like anything I can fix where it's really, it's like, what am I hopeless about? Okay, and then how do I start solving for that despair and that sense of helplessness as it relates to that specific thing? And so to me, it's been key because then I can start, you know, even if it's just identifying the stress around whatever that thing is and like feeling that feeling that stress and that sadness or that pain or that grief or that anger or that frustration. It's just helped me tremendously because I'm like a systems, I need a logical way to do something. Yeah, I think with the the stress response thing we mentioned, where you're making decisions from a place of stress before you've kind of thought through what you're feeling before making any decisions or, you know, leaning into that that feeling or that impulse rather than taking a breath and taking a moment and letting that stress response pass. One of the things that you've talked about on your podcast that I found interesting is the physical effects of stress. They last for, what, like 90 seconds or something. So you have a period of time where you're really not in your right mind and not in the position to be making good decisions. Can you talk a little bit about that that distance between the stress response and kind of the more rational response as part of that first stage? Yeah, absolutely. And it's 90 seconds too from the point of trigger. So if like someone keeps triggering you, <laughs> you have to like have the end of the trigger and then 90 seconds. And I'm, you know, I'm very impulsive. So it's incredibly hard for me. And it has been since I'm a little kid. I want everything fixed like five minutes ago. So waiting 90 seconds, just, you know, I, first of all, I didn't know this when I was a kid, but even now, I mean, if you really sit through 90 seconds, that's actually quite a long time to sit through, to let your body calm down and breathe. And, and it is, it's the psychological flooding of chemicals. And so when you're in that, you're not thinking clearly and rationally and problem solving, and you're not coming up with your best solutions. And that's why it's like, when you're an addict, learning to take that long pause is so critical and making it through that initial kind of time is so critical. And again, even becoming aware of what those triggers are and, and, and where they come from. I mean, oftentimes I didn't even realize I was triggered or I, that I was in my stress response. And, you know, if you have things like PTSD, your stress response can last a lot longer. And so, because it gets into that hypervigilant state. And so that's why you see things right now with the masks, you, you see so much violence and people, I mean, they're just so triggered 
by the perception that things like freedom is getting taken away or rights are being withheld because you're you're really going at the basic safety of the human kind of spirit and so and that that feeling of safety is really our greatest need and it's no surprise that there are so much there's so many outbursts right now and the reality is people aren't taught this so they don't even understand or know about this stress response and about this physiological you know one of the things we learned from focus i learned from doing focus group and talking to young kids is not only do they learn their own like stress response and triggers they also learn start to identify it in other people and that is equally powerful because if you can see when others are in their stress response and have more compassion for that and know you know when to back off a little bit and provide that space and that as opposed to you know my just reaction always as a kid was to just engage and get in and calm everything down and that's oftentimes not what's the most helpful it's just giving that time and space to you know let things calm down a little bit so it's not it's helpful not only for yourself, identifying in yourself, but in other people as well, and on how you engage with others. Yeah, it sounds like it cuts across a lot of lines, not just mental health and not just addiction, but also this, you know, conflict resolution and even like you mentioned, mass, like spanning like our political interactions and all different kinds of things that initiate that stress response. It sounds like this model of hopefulness is intended to be fairly broad, right? It's not just like, oh, hopefulness is for mental illness. Yeah. It's much more than that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the research on hope is so fascinating. I mean, it really relates to all outcomes in life. So to me, hope and hopelessness and hope in that spectrum is just, yeah, it's so important for all of us to understand and know. And it really, to me, it has so little to do with mental illness and everything to do with just a life skill. Like, a really critical life skill that as you improve, we know it's a protective factor against anxiety and depression. So as you increase your level of hope, you're less likely to have anxiety and depression in the future. So it's related to mental health. And yet I I see it as a much broader, really important thing for all of us to be practicing. And we're all stressed. Like we all have stressors, you know, so it's like... Um, how did you come to work in this field? So what's your, what's your story, your kind of background and how did you come to learn about hopefulness and make it such a focal part of your life? Yeah. So I, um, let's see, go, it's so far back. (laughs) So I lost my dad when I was 18 to suicide and he unfortunately had, was super triggery and we knew nothing about the stress response and I would see it in him and I would want to fix it from when I was two years old. I would just want to help him fix him and, and really um, support him and was unable to do that, obviously. You know, we can't fix other people, unfortunately. And there was so much we didn't know at that time. But then became an addict at a very young age, alcohol, cigarettes, pot. Um, I got an eating disorder. I just would kind of go from one thing to another. I was very impulsive. And so I, when I was in my early 30s, I was launching my own company and brand. So I ended up getting a master's in international business. And I did an undergrad in psychology. And you know, I was always really passionate about um, social justice and social good and, you know, grew up in a family of Republicans, God bless them. <laughs> and I was this, you know, lone, save the world, save the animals type person. And um, But I really saw that, like, my way of thinking was very unrealistic because it wasn't a sustained way of doing things. And there was balance that they needed on their end as well. And so, but that's why I got a business degree. So really I could understand. Um, And then I went to work for a number of big companies in marketing and branding and rebranding and advertising and sales and marketing and worked with incredible brands and learned so much. And then I was launching my own brand and I wanted to donate to a nonprofit doing work in mental health 
because of the power of cause marketing and the Komen Foundation, you know, had done so much for breast cancer and pink ribbons and packaging and raising money. And, you know, we just, this was 17 years ago and we weren't talking about mental health like we are now um, and social impact. So anyway, I went to depression.org and I found the branding on the website very depressing. <laughs> and it was like, a black screen or a blue screen and there was like a black outline of an individual with tears running down and I was just like what like you know I can't associate my cool hip new mood light brand with this and so talked to some nonprofits in this space and really as I learned and researched more and more around mental health and depression and suicide you know depression and anxiety are very treatable and yet, at the time, less than 25% were getting treatment, primarily due to stigma. And I saw stigma is really just a negative brand, a lack of information, a misperception, just not understanding, really, like, people not understanding what it is. And I looked at what other disease states have done to rebrand, like breast cancer, like AIDS, and found some consistent things. One is talking about the biology of the brain. and body and trying to incorporate that, getting celebrities and leaders engaged in it, um, doing cause marketing, using universal symbolism, you know, like McDonald's has the golden arches and every good brand has kind of a symbol for it. And so I started really down that path and initially started just teaching other nonprofits about how to talk about something negative in a positive way, how to like, you know, the impact that I saw that the imagery and the language and everything we were doing in the space was really adding to stigma as opposed to taking away. Even the early days anti-stigma campaigns, I just thought <laughs> they, they seem to be just fueling a lot of people's misperceptions, which is like it happens over there and not me and it's scary. And, and so that's what I started with initially. And then I got some success with my product line for through my company, The Mood Factory. We got in Lowe's Home Improvement eventually. Um, I raised over a million dollars for the nonprofit and different projects we were doing. And I said, you know, I really want to focus on a programmatic solution where I see a gap in the space. And at the time, I thought the biggest need was suicide prevention, but truly a preventative model. I said, well, if, you know, we want to do suicide prevention as opposed to at, at a time of crisis, like people generally just didn't invest in prevention, true prevention. You know, they, they dealt with the crisis, which is equally important. The hotlines, the restricting access to means um, of lethal substances, but really from a preventative standpoint, we had to get to the root of what's causing suicide. And so I started down that research and just poured over the, the studies that had been done. And I just saw hopelessness in every study as a predictor of suicide. And then I, you know, I've knew with my dad, I know, know a lot of people with lived experience, um, attempt survivors, my own lived experience, um, doing activism in the field and hopelessness is a consistent single predictor and um, a lot of research had been done on it. But again, nobody like really like, okay, how do you actually teach how to get from hopelessness to hope? And so I said, well, that's what we're gonna do. We started with like 10 lessons. <laughs> And I'd be embarrassed now, you know, if I were to look back at those original lessons, but I'm like, we just put together an advisory board. I'm like, okay, we're just going to try to start teaching hope. And then we moved to 12 lessons um, based on focus groups and studies we've done. And um, we did some work in Northern Ireland and saw as we increased hope, depression and anxiety symptoms in kids did in fact go down. Last year, we just updated our program and it's now I'm super proud of it. And it's really everything I've ever wanted to teach someone about mental health and hope and just really how to, you know, incorporating the biology and the symbolism and all of those things that we know are so important. So I know that's such a long answer. <laughs> no, that's great. So is, is that what developed into like the Global Hope Challenge and these kind of what is that yeah. that methodology or that kind of idea of these these month long or, or like time period based 
hope challenges with specific goals and and elements to them. Yeah, well, I'll show you. This is Hopeful Minds. So this is our curriculum for little kids. So this is K through six. You can order a booklet, but it's also free. Like, just I want it free for all kids because hope, hopelessness is very learned and it's an oppressive. We we learn hopelessness and it's a consequence of discrimination and oppression. So usually those that need it most are those that can like not afford it the most. So it's free and it's in the, so it's K through six. We have two programs with K through six on Hopeful Minds um, that's free. And we also have a parent's guide. Anyone can download and use. But then in November of last year, um, I was approached by our mayor in Reno and she said, have you ever thought of like a hopeful, a city of hope or something like that? And I said, actually, you know, I kind of have, let's do something. And she said, great. And so then like brought forward how you would start to operationalize hope throughout a city. So we created a hopeful cities website. The idea is to create something that anyone can use in their own city and customize. And, you know, we have yard signs that people can not just put up their own yard signs, but they can take the yard sign artwork, take it to a company and say, why don't you sponsor this and have the company put their logo on it and print them and have everyone in the community have yard signs. These yard signs, you know, share them, share a saying or a quote about hope or something, but also the website, which then drives people to learn um, about hopeful cities. And as you said, we created a challenge. So we created a 30 day challenge to start teaching the how to of hope to adults and teens. So like anyone can sign up for the challenge and you get an email a day that starts giving you the research around hope, the five keys to hope, what it takes to maintain and grow hope and start practicing your skills and understand kind of the process of hope. We also have five keys to hope. We have posters that people can print out and put up in their workplaces or at their home or practice. And, you know, again, it's not just the, you know, this is the key to hope, but here are the skills you need to be practicing to reinforce this key to hope. So the aim is to really teach as we talk about it. So to not, it's not just a marketing campaign. It's really operationalizing hope through the marketing campaign which I think is so important. Again, we don't want people just talking about hope. We want them to understand hope at a much deeper level and start practicing the skills, measure their own hope, start keeping track of how, like where they are on the hope scale and what it improves it and what, you know, takes it away and where to go for support in their own community. So, you know, that's the ultimate aim. We're starting with Reno and we're working on Reno to get this to populations and then we'll work to expand. Um, any city can start engaging now in any way they want. And, you know, the Global Hope Challenge is free. Anyone can take it. The curriculums are free that they can teach their kids, the parents guide. So, you know, it's really about operationalizing hope in any, like, in any and all ways that we can. Do you think that the strategy of the hopeful cities and making it a citywide effort helps to create a conversation around it so that it's not just, oh, I'm learning these hopeful skills myself and applying them to myself, but it's a mostly like I'm doing a thing for myself online by making it citywide is part of the goal to have it be, oh, well, my family's also doing it. My neighbors are also doing it. And I, you know, saw the the mayor talk about it and that it's becoming a kind of a, a social effort in addition to a personal effort? Yeah, that's for sure the aim. And that we all kind of become aware of what hope is and how to help support each other in hope. Because hope is not, you know, it's a collective effort. Um, it's something we can all kind of rally around. And it's not Republican or Democrat. It's not, you know, um, we, I think it's something that can unite us. And that is the aim um, from a community we're also working to create an art space and gathering space that we're working to kind of see how we might develop. Because, yeah, it's really important that I think we engage others in the conversations around hope. And, you know, a network is so key. And if you can get a whole city kind of talking about it and collaborating on it, too, the outcomes for the city are also super improved. So if you can improve hope in a city, you can improve, you know, you reduce things like 
violence and crime and accidents and unemployment and all of these things that are major challenges for cities. So, you know, the aim is to really get the city and, and everyone in the city and community engaged in improving hope and embracing the science of hope and helping in a very fundamental level all of these different things. And I imagine that the timing is also pretty important too, because we're coming out of COVID. Obviously, COVID is not over yet. It's still, you know, we've got a little ways to go, but the, you know, the end of the tunnel is visible. The, you know, the, <laughs> there's a light there. So do you think that the timing of it as people are coming out from, you know, COVID stresses and all of, obviously all of the economic challenges and all the challenges that you listed, I think were definitely exacerbated over the last year by the pandemic. So do you think that this is also a particularly good time as people are starting to go back to their lives and kind of learn, you know, relearn how to live in a normal world that adding hopefulness skills is a a big part of how we bounce back? Yeah. So my, my aim would have had it happen all before COVID because had we been armed with the skills moving into COVID, we could have prevented so much of what is I consider very preventable. So when we don't know how to manage our stress response, it just increases in it. And that's what can lead to anxiety, depression, suicide. And I, I think it's always super important. It's, I think what's happened from COVID is people now understand the significance and importance of mental health more so than ever before. There's a positive to come out of it. And yet when you're in a depressive episode, it's, you know, harder to learn the skills at that point um, or when you're super anxious or when your stress response is fried. I believe it's always important. I truly believe hope and knowing the skills is a protective and preventative factor against so much of this. So better late than never. I mean, including with myself, you know, to learn and start practicing. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, we'll see how it how it all kinds of comes together. And it's definitely a different way to look at mental health. So I'm starting to teach hope in the workplace now. you know, we know the cost of depression on the workforce. It's like the biggest cost for um, employers, you know, in terms of productivity and absenteeism and kind of all of these outcomes. And, you know, if you can increase hope in your employees, you can, it's a protective factor. So you're, they're less likely to be depressed in the future. So it can save and cost. So I'm doing a lot of workplace work now. Um, it's elevated, I think, the conversation for all of us around it. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it's always going to be really important. And, you know, it's why I'm really passionate. So the next the next iteration of my work around hope is going to be to teach how to have a hopeful mindset as it relates to specific challenges. And so when you go into creating that training with people that have successfully gone through those challenges and come out the other side and used the skills for hope to navigate. Uh, Like caregiving, for example, we know that depression, anxiety, hopelessness increases for people that have to move into caregiving. So if we can then train people going into caregiving how to remain, how to have a hopeful mindset as it applies to that specific challenge, that's that's my ultimate aim so that we can prevent them from going into unknown stressors that they just aren't prepared for, can't manage, you know, go into that then anxiety or depression and hopelessness. And because I believe so much in the um, power of hope as a protective and preventative factor for so many things, like there's nothing someone somewhere generally hasn't gone through and come out the other side. And so it's really learning from people that have dealt with different challenges and learning from their experiences and having them teach people before it becomes a big challenge for them. So, Yeah, and that sounds like it ties in with the idea of having a support network and people to talk to 
that you're not alone in these things. And a lot of times when you do share your hopelessness or the feelings that you have with people who have been through something similar, it makes it easier to cope with. Do you think that that is one of the, the, obviously it's been a challenge during COVID, but I think a lot of people have connected more electronically, but in general, is that kind of, is the expertise of other people or the experiences that other people have gone through a fundamental part of that having a network and having someone to talk to is not just anyone, but someone who, who understands. Absolutely. Yeah. Super important. And it's compassionate and listening and, and all of that. And I think that um, we want to learn from someone that can identify with us and we can identify with. And so for me to tell a homeless person, like, you know, here are the skills for hope and strategies. And, you know, I haven't been home homeless. And so who am I to really talk about that? But I can um, share the science of hope and we can learn from people that have used those strategies um, to get out of of homelessness and to housing, if that's an aim for them, or from unemployment to employment. I mean, I can speak to running a business and feeling hope, you know, the, the, the challenges around that. But um. You know, learning from people that have been through it, and I think even more so, learning from them before we even have to go through it, so that when we then feel those stressors, or you know, that's why to me the mindset training is so important. Like before I go on the entrepreneurial journey, like I should go through like the training about how to have a hopeful mindset as an entrepreneur, and because there are going to be a lot of challenges that. If I'm alone and going through this journey and don't anticipate it and haven't thought about it, it's 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 a lot harder to navigate, I think. Yeah, it's that connection and it's that again preventative kind of aspect so that we, we know it's coming and we have some skills already that we are armed with that we can use instead of, you know, being in that stress response and then just having it kind of cascade from there. I like what you said earlier about being able to kind of start at any time. You talked about you, you know, have these experiences and they don't necessarily define you forever. Hopefulness isn't something that you have to have started as a kid or learned about as a young person. I think it sounds like the experiences that we've all had struggling with not being hopeful or not having those skills, being able to look back at them and say, oh, okay, now I see why I reacted that way. Or, oh, I see why I was so hopeless about this situation do you think that it is a, how do I put this? Can you start being more hopeful anytime? Like it, there's not a, a prerequisite. It doesn't matter what struggles you've been through. Is it something that is relatively easy to kind of shift your mindset into, or do those past experiences help you have a better understanding of, of how hopefulness works? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think all of the above, like, and, and we know before the age of 10, like, the kids and I, I just see it. The kids just like incorporated it and it makes sense to them and they just start act, you know, <laughs> using the skills. Whereas we become very ingrained in our habits. So the interesting research: you can have anxiety and depression, but it doesn't predict your future level of hope. But your your level of your current level of hope will predict your future level of anxiety and depression. And so it's that, that to me is such empowering research because just because I'm anxious or depressed now doesn't mean I always have to be that way, right? I can start to learn these skills and practice and incorporate it. And again, it's a protective factor. So the more I focus and practice on managing my stress response and like, you know, when I'm going through challenging times, really making sure that I am doing those habits that keep me in my upstairs brain and you know, that's when I have to become really diligent about it as opposed to like going out and drinking or, you know, doing things that are unhealthy for me that we know are just harmful in our brains and setting those SMART goals, like not just being blase about the goals, but really being specific, measurable, you know, and, and cultivating a network. Like really important right now during COVID when we're just removed from everyone that we are very active and proactive about how we cultivate our network because it's harder to do, right? 
And you can learn it at any age, and that's what's really amazing about it. You can start working on it now, and you can build up your hope. And again, like for me, it's I haven't been in a major depressive episode since I started the work. You know, I've been off my meds for a long time. I, you know, I'm doing these like. I live what I talk about. I, I'm very emotional. So I like cry, like I've cried more this last year. It's like brought up just all of this emotion in me. And yet that's okay. Like I don't run from it anymore. I sit in it, I like work through it. And then I'm like, oh, I'm out, you know, I'm not like just prolonging it with my addictive behaviors and avoiding the emotions and avoiding pain or frustration or, you know, anger or any of that. I'm, sitting in it, listening to it, um, it, you know, as much as I can, and then learning from it and moving back to, okay, then, you know, you get out of that stress response, you work through it, and then you're back to practicing those, okay, those habits, and what can I do? How can I take action? So you can absolutely learn it at any age. And I, to me, it's like, my risk for suicide, you know, doctors, it's very high. You have a genetic predisposition. You have a previous attempt. You have, you know, anxiety and depression. You have a history of addiction. You have, you know, all of these things. Um, a major life event. I go for a major life event. That's predict. So it's, but I'm like, okay. And I'm incredibly proactive about practicing all of my skills every day and knowing the process, again, from hopelessness. So my podcast, The Hope Matrix, I mean, it's a matrix because it's like there's there's despair and then positive feelings on one side, and then there's that helplessness and inspired action. So it's like you got to get from, those, from that despair back to those positive feelings. And, you know, no matter how horrible you feel or sad or angry or it always passes. Like it all, we think it's going to kill us, but it doesn't. It's like actually just when we escape it is what really hurts us. And so learning to just be with that and be with ourselves and that and create a network to help support us through that is just so important. How do you think we can measure whether we're successful or how hopeful we are? Because I know a lot of people have periods and I am this is happens to me where I will have periods in my life where I have a project that I'm working on. I'm really excited about this podcast that I'm doing. I am busy all the time. And then I feel hopeful and optimistic and great. And then I'll have periods where I don't have a big project and I feel down and I feel depressed and I am not sure what I'm doing. How do you measure whether you're doing good overall? Not just like, I'm doing good this week. I'm doing good this month. But how do you know when you've really learned those skills and you, you, is it when you catch yourself being like, Oh, this is one of those, those trigger events that normally would make me feel hopeless and terrible. But instead you can recognize that you're seeing that and addressing it in, in the moment. Yeah. I mean, so like I can be all over the hope scale in a specific day. So I don't think it's like, I don't think we reach hopefulness and like we are in hopefulness all the time or hopelessness. So I think it's always fluctuating. So there are there's we put the scales online so you can go to hopeful cities and take the um, measure your hope and you can measure it and you can kind of keep track of it where you where your score is and where you kind of fluctuate. I mean that's part of the challenge. The 30-day challenge, we have a workbook you can download free and you can start filling out and reflecting on what's impacting your hope and and start getting a better understanding and awareness of it. I think that's really, really key, first and foremost. Yeah, but it's not something that like you just are hopeful. Like it it's a process. <laughs> it's a continual process. And it's to me, it's like continually going, okay, I'm triggered, I'm in despair. How can I manage the despair? And then when you say you go through down periods, it's like, what specifically are you down? What is the despair about? Is it about, and then you identify that despair and you feel through it and, and you work on that despair and then you let it go. And then you get back and, you know, you get out and hike and, and, and that you feel better, you know, or you do something that helps get you in a more, a more positive place. And then you then start working on taking action. So, you know, instead of 
running from that despair or, you know, that feeling of, uh, like, you get really clear on what it's about. Is it about, I don't have a project that I'm passionate about? Is it like my relationships? Uh, you know, I don't have enough friends or I don't feel connected to my friends. It's like, and you feel that and then, and you listen to it. So you don't run from it. You really feel it. And then you work on, okay, now let's practice my happiness habits. And then what, how can I solve, how can I solve for that when I'm in a better place? Like, how can I solve to really strengthen my bonds with my friends or create new connections because I don't, my old connections aren't good for me? Or how do I find a new project that I'm passionate about and that really inspires me and drives me and who can I connect with and that? So it's really, it's just, it's an ongoing process, I think. And, you know, because we can feel hopeful and hopeless about really, you know, one thing in life or many things or everything, which, you know, when you're there, like chunk it down, <laughs> like focus on one thing you feel hopeless about or you, yeah, you know, and then start solving there and that despair and that, that helplessness. Excellent. Um, what have you seen that's encouraging in the, in the space of hopefulness and positive thinking and, and learning these skills? I'm so glad that you're taking so much action. Have you seen other things going on? I know that Reno has uh, talk space free for all Reno residents, which I think is huge. Cause I think therapy is a huge part of that. Uh, maybe not a, when you say network, you generally think of friends, but when you talk about a network, really you're just talking about someone to talk to, right? And yeah. therapy is a, fantastic source of that. And for Reno to make Talkspace free for everyone in the city is wild. So I'm super excited about that. Is there other things that you've seen that are, that are encouraging in this, in this world? Yeah. I mean, let's just, I just want to emphasize it is historic that a city has provided access, prepaid access to support during these challenging times. I mean, it's not, it's not a substitution for in-person therapy. And really, I mean, it's, one video connection a month and then texting, unlimited texting. So it's, and I don't even, I mean, I'm like getting to the point, I don't even want to call it therapy. It's like managing our stress response right now. Everybody is stressed. Like everybody should have someone that's non-judgmental, that's going to be a problem solving type support person that's going to help get them through this. And, And so, you know, to do it on that scale is really historic. I mean, when I, you know, I remember in my earlier years, I thought, why, why is it easier to call 911 and like report a crime than it is to call and get help from someone when I'm like struggling? Like it's easier for me to go to jail than it is to get care and support when I'm in pain. And, you know, that's when people act out in those violent states, it's, it's a cry for help on it. You know, it's pain. It comes from a source of pain and hopelessness. And so, you know, it's historic for a city to recognize that and provide resources to residents for it. So I really hope that residents take advantage of it while it's while it's here and um, available. I mean, I think that there are so many things happening in just overall mental health space that are really promising. I think the first time we're talking about biology and behavior and the interplay and it's not biology or behavior, it's both, and they interact with each other, and um, it's so important to know that. Leaders and celebrities and business leaders and influencers are all speaking about mental health and talking about it in a positive, proactive way, um, and that it's okay to get support and and help. Again, I think a lot more needs to be done to normalize it, and again, it's, you know, they have all of these, like one in four people have a you know, mental health disorder. And I, you know, we all have, you know, stress and we all need support. Like it's just, so I think even more so can happen in the kind of normalization of of just, you know, mental health. And let's see. So, I mean, I think those are the main things. I think we're starting to see increases in funding and for people to take it seriously and, you know, new drugs coming out that are supportive and, new therapeutic techniques um, and research around it. People are supporting prevention. So we're starting to get support for our Hopeful Minds program, which you know I've been trying for many, many years. <laughs> and so, you know, it's the evidence is so clear to me. So it's, um, and yet we tend to be a society that, you know, when the problem gets huge, then we go into action modes. 
<laughs> so, and we could save ourselves so much time and money if we just really focused on that prevention. Yeah, I think that um, people are starting to take notice too in the impact, the connection of physical health and mental health. I mean, really pretty prevalent and people are starting to understand it through all that's happened during COVID. And so, um, and I think that's super promising. So yeah, we'll see. I feel really optimistic about progress that's being made in the field overall. That's great. Me too. I do feel like the the stigma around mental health is rapidly fading. People go to therapy, people talk about mental health. There's not this automatic assumption that, oh, there's something wrong with you or it's weird. Or Everyone knows multiple people, I would think, who have had some kind of mental health diagnosis or have talked about mental health with them, that it's no longer something that is tucked away from most conversations, at least not among a lot of people I know, I know there are probably some people who still struggle with acceptance around mental health issues, but I've been very encouraged in recent years to see the direction that we're going. So for people who want to know more, where can people find you and your website and your projects? Um, let us know uh, where we can find more information. Awesome. So all our work around hope is pretty much at hopefulcities.org. If you go there, you can get connected to the challenge and, um, you know, the nonprofit's name is ifred, ifred.org, so you can find out about us there, too. Um, I have a website, katherinegetsky.com, and I have a link to my book. I have a book called The Biggest Little Book About Hope. But my advisor, who's a Harvard Catalyst, he's just a brilliant, he's just a genius, and I love him to death. And he's so funny. And, and, and he said to me, um, so I said, well, can you look at the, read the book and let me know what you think and to see if you can write me something. So he, but, and I called it the biggest little book about hope because I'm like, I want it to be really short and like give great information. And also it's, you know, the biggest little city. So I wrote it in Reno. So I kind of named it after it. He's like, this is the biggest little big book <laughs> about hope. So he thinks it's too big. No, not too big, but he's, he's awesome. But yeah, you can see my book there. And then I have links to the Hope Matrix podcast and my company, The Mood Factory, which, you know, I'm working to get moving again, working on some new product lines to get into retail. So that's exciting. And yeah, that's those are the main ones. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciated learning a lot about hope and hopefulness and, and how we can all be a little bit better and, and feel a little bit better. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Listeners, thank you again for tuning in to Renoites this week. And thank you to my guest, Catherine Getsky. For more information, again, you can visit hopefulcities.org. Quick reminder, if you enjoyed the podcast, I would really appreciate you leaving me a review. Find me on Apple Podcasts. Leave me a five-star review. It will help people find us. This is a brand new podcast, so I need all the help I can get in getting the word out. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. That is how you will know when we have new episodes. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Hope I will see you again here next week. <laughs>